Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. Glad you're with us this morning and we're ready to study the Bible and we hope you are too. Uh, maybe you're a first-time viewer. If you are, let me explain what we do on this program. We just take viewers' questions and try to find answers in the Bible to them. We think that's a great way to help people understand their Bible is to answer questions that you've always wondered about or something you've heard and you wonder, is that really in the Bible? Uh, we'll try to find those kind of things for you. So there's a phone number and a website on the screen. Use those anytime. Get in touch with us, and we'll put it in our stack of questions and get to it just as quickly as we can. When I say we, I mean me and my partner, Toby Levering. Good morning, Toby. Hi, Steve. Glad you're here and ready to go. Uh, we always give our viewers one first, so let's get them started with a question they can work on for the next half hour. Name Abraham's nephew. Who was Abraham's nephew? And we'll give you that answer at the end of the program. See if you know that little bit of Bible trivia. And I think you drew the first one today, Toby, so you get to start us off. Yes, a uh, viewer asked this question, why does the Church of Christ not allow instruments when they sing? Well, uh, have you have ever visited a Church of Christ? Uh, we encourage you to do that on this program. If you know one in the area or uh, watch a regular viewer of the program, and maybe you've visited one, and that's probably the... The thing that most people notice upon their first time to come to a Church of Christ is like, man, where's the band? Where's the where's the organ? Where's the piano? Where's the guitar? You just don't see those. And uh, I would say if you've never uh, visited a Church of Christ before, that would probably stand out. Uh, in fact, I had someone once approach me and say, uh, what's your stance on music? <laughs> and my, my answer to them was, well, I... I'm for it, <laughs> but I think they meant a certain kind of music. And the simple answer as to why most churches of Christ don't have instrumental music is because we don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. We don't see the Christians that anytime worship is described doing anything other than or being commanded to do anything other than simply to sing and to make uh, melody in your heart. Uh, the word a cappella, which means to, to sing without uh, the use of a mechanical aid with an instrument, uh, means, is Latin for, in the manner of the church, uh, church singing. And so uh, a cappella music historically was the norm and not the exception. Uh, many uh, churches for a long time did not use anything but uh, simple uh, a cappella singing. So historically, although it may be sort of uh, atypical today, historical, historically, uh, a cappella singing was the way that the church worshipped and sang. And uh, as instruments were gradually brought in, many church leaders like uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Wesley uh, opposed the introduc introduction of the instrument. Uh, we believe, I think, 
I hate to speak for all churches of Christ, but I, I think generally speaking, uh, we view that uh, a cappella singing as the purest form of worship, where you are worshiping God uh, with the instrument that God gave you naturally. Uh, it's the most biblical, uh, adding instruments, adding other extra things. Uh, you're adding things in there which uh, the Bible never gives us any indication that there's a need for. And, and I will say, I, I've been to um, different kinds of worship services. Uh, when you are singing a cappella, uh, you can hear what you're singing. You can pay attention more to the words and to the things which are being taught through the songs. And that's part of what uh, singing helps us do is we not only build up and edify and encourage each other, but it's a manner of teaching, uh, teaching doctrines and truths that are taught in the scriptures, but teaching them with songs. Uh, my little, my children uh, learn in that way. All of us learn better when we have songs to remember things by. So it's helpful as well. Uh, let me give you a scripture from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. Uh, Paul there writes, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your, uh, to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, yeah, when you visit Church of Christ, uh, you'll probably notice the a cappella singing. If you ever stop by Northside, uh, especially for a funeral or a wedding, we've got a group of people who are very talented <laughs> really do a good job of showing us uh, good a cappella singing. So, uh, hope that helps you understand it a little better. Okay, good answer. All I have to do is define meek. You were okay. once a definition here. And uh, <laughs> the trouble with the word meek is... <clears throat> It sounds so much like weak that we kind of equate that, and people think a meek person is weak or a milk toast or not strong and uh, brave and all that. That's not what meek means at all. Some very strong people in the Bible are called meek. In fact, Moses, you'd have to admit, he was a pretty strong leader. Uh, Moses was called a meek man. So meek doesn't mean weak. And since it's a definition, I just went to the dictionary and looked up some uh, definitions of it. So here are some uh, quotes of what meek means. Uh, mildness, gentleness of spirit, or humility. Uh, humility toward God and toward others. Or having the right or the power to do something, but refraining for the benefit of someone else. Interesting definition. Uh, a couple of keys in there. Humility is a pretty good definition for meek. Uh, but that last one reminds me of Jesus uh, having the power to do something but refraining for the benefit of someone else. Uh, famous song we sing called 10,000 Angels. Uh, Jesus could have called 10,000 angels uh, to rescue him on the cross, but he didn't. Uh, he died alone for you and me, the song says. So Jesus is the personification of meek, uh, and a lot of other strong characters in the Bible were meek also. So uh, humble, uh, refraining from using the power that you have, pretty good definitions of meek, I hope. <laughs> okay. Uh, viewer asked the question, can a homosexual be forgiven and go to heaven? And my answer to that is uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, any person can be forgiven of any sin and go to heaven. Uh, that's what Jesus came and died for, and that's why he went to the cross. 
and uh, that's why he was his very purpose to redeem us to deliver us from sin uh, I would add to that uh, homosexuality as with uh, any other sin uh, certainly it, it's not what God intends for you to be forgiven of it and continue to live in that lifestyle uh, I think there are, are many folks who are in Christ who struggle with homosexual behavior, temptation uh, to act on that. And as with any other sin, uh, the temptation to lie, the temptation to, to lust, the temptation uh, to steal, uh, we have to resist that temptation. Uh, we have to use the grace of God uh, not only to be forgiven, but to allow us to learn to say no uh, to the things which God doesn't want. And so it's, you know, identifying that, yes, it is a sin and uh, understand that we're going to not live in that way any longer. <clears throat> um, Romans chapter 6 tells us that uh, those of us who died to sin should no longer live in sin. And so that, I always add that to uh, when we're talking about sin and forgiveness. Yes, any sin can be forgiven. Uh, and every sin we need to flee from and, and repent of and not live that way anymore because it's not what God wants for us. Uh, he knows that's not in our best interest. Uh, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, before I, I read it, but it is on the screen, I'll tell you that the church at Corinth was a church with people uh, who came from a lot of uh, bad behaviors. Uh, they came straight out of the world. Corinth is a very worldly metropolitan city. And so there was lots of sin at many different types there. And Paul addresses this uh, as he writes to the church there. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. <clears throat> Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, uh, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So certainly there are people at Corinth uh, that, that came out uh, that, that had been some of those things, that had practiced some of those behaviors, that had lived some of those lifestyles, but they had been changed by Jesus. They had been transformed, and they weren't living that way any longer. And so, yes, you can be forgiven, and uh, if you're seeking to leave that lifestyle, I would encourage you to uh, open your Bible, to sign up for the Bible Correspondence Course, uh, maybe start attending church, uh, or a Celebrate Recovery Ministry would be uh, something that would be helpful to you as you begin your journey. You mentioned the Bible Correspondence Course. It would be a good time for me to talk about uh, what that is and why we offer it each week. Uh, we believe in Bible study, obviously. We spend 30 minutes studying the Bible each week. Uh, but we also advocate personal Bible study, home Bible study, you getting into your Bible. And we know that's difficult to get started sometimes. So we've got some tools that we've been offering for all the years we've been on. And thousands of people have taken us up on it and learned a lot about the Bible. And we'll offer that to you today. Uh, here's the first set of lessons that we'll send you. Uh, just a good basic Bible study, an overview of the Bible. And then we've got more advanced courses that will come after that. If you want to keep studying, you can stop anytime you want. Uh, 
you get busy and can't carry on, that's fine. You can take a break. Uh, no pressure at all. We just think it's a great way to study the Bible and have found that it helps people. So we offer that to you. Phone number, website on the screen. Use them anytime. So you'd like that free course and we'll send you the first one. You can see how you like it. And if you want to keep going, you can study a long time with Know Your Bible Study Tools. All right, interesting question here. Luke fourteen twenty six. Viewers been reading and says uh, Jesus says we should hate our family. What's that all about? Well, uh, let me talk about Bible study a little bit here. If you are reading along in your Bible and you get to Luke fourteen twenty six and you've never heard this before, it is kind of shocking. Uh, let's put Luke fourteen twenty six up and look at it. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me. And doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Uh, yes, even his own life. He can't be my disciple. Well, Jesus certainly sounds like he's saying, you got to hate your family. you got to hate yourself. Uh, it's the only way you can follow me. Well, obviously that doesn't sound like a reasonable teaching. That doesn't sound like Jesus. So this viewer said, tell me what that means. Uh, if your uh, Bible has no study aids in it, uh, then you can either Google that verse and see what different people have to say about it, or you can call our program, which this viewer did. Uh, if you have a study Bible, uh, most likely you'd go down to the bottom of the page, and Luke 14:26 would be highlighted there, and whoever wrote the study Bible would probably explain that a little bit. So that's one benefit of a study Bible. You can get answers pretty quick to some of those obvious, strange questions you come up with. Uh, let me tell you about another thing you can do, though. If your Bible's got a little strip down the middle of the page with a little bit of print in it, uh, those are references, cross-references. And if you look at 1426, go over to that middle column and where it says verse 26, it'll give you some other verses perhaps. And one that a reference would give you is to look at Matthew 1037. And you'd go there and here's what you'd see. Jesus is in the same speech, but the way Matthew tells it, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Okay, that's a little different slant on things, isn't it? Uh, it's not a hate thing. It's a priority thing. It's loving Jesus more than anybody else, making him the first priority. So a study Bible would probably explain that to you, or just checking that reference, looking at another place where Jesus said that, and Matthew told it a little differently, or used a little different terminology. Uh, now it makes sense to us. Uh, it's about priorities, about making Jesus first, is what he was talking about. Now, let me add this. Uh, if you've grown up in a supportive Christian family, and everything's just wonderful and they understand your Christianity and all that, that verse still seems kind of strange. Uh, I love my mother and father. I love my brother and sister. I love Jesus. It's all okay. Well, there are parts of the world and families, even in this country, uh, where if you choose Jesus, uh, you are disowned by your family. You've got to make that choice. Do I put Jesus first or do I put my family first? 
some parts of the world. People are even killed if they try to convert to Christianity. Uh, so if we understand the world picture, what Jesus is saying here makes pretty sense. If you want to be a follower of me, uh, you got to put me number one because there could be some problems with it if you uh, if you do, and you got to make that decision. So that's what he's talking about there. It's not about hating uh, family. It's about loving Jesus more than anything else in your life. A viewer asked the question about the thief on the cross. What about the thief on the cross in regards to baptism? Uh, this is probably the uh, case that I hear most often or we hear in response or rebuttal from people who are somewhat familiar with the Bible and uh, we uh, teach what the Bible clearly says that a person must believe and be baptized uh, to enter the kingdom, to be forgiven of their sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Scripture is very clear on that. But sometimes you will hear people object and they'll say, well, what about the thief on the cross? They get into whataboutism, which is always dangerous. And they, the problem with I ha have with this approach is uh, it, it's like saying, well, uh, we've got the Bible here and uh, the thief on the cross according to their argument, means uh, you don't have to be baptized. And so that nullifies all the other verses and scriptures that say you do have to be baptized. Now, that doesn't make sense to me and how we approach the Bible on this program in that the, the scripture is unified, that verses don't contradict one another, that, that one example doesn't nullify all of the other commands. Uh, the thief on the cross is a story found in Luke chapter 23, verses 38 through 42. You can look it up at home. I w it won't be on the screen, but I'll read it. There was uh, one of the criminals who hung, hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay? I think it's a, a, a beautiful story about the mercy of Jesus, even, you know, thinking that the, the words that he uttered when he said, uh, today you'll be with me in paradise, uh, those were probably hard words to say as he hung from the cross, that he used his last breaths uh, and his last actions in this world to continue to show the mercy and the compassion of God. That's a beautiful story, and, and I hate to see it being abused as a proof example for why a person wouldn't need to do what Jesus clearly said to do. Um, uh, obviously, I think this is uh, an, a unique example of Jesus's mercy and compassion that he had all authority to do. Um, I've used this example before, but in, a, in some cases, a judge who's weighing a trial uh, has the power of clemency. Uh, that is, they know the person has broke the law, they know what the punishment is, uh, but they say, you know, I understand all of that, but I have the power as judge to issue clemency. Uh, another example is a presidential pardon. Uh, the person may be guilty, had been convicted, but the president uses his power to say, I'm going to pardon that person. Well, I think this is the example of Jesus using his power to show mercy. I mean, for goodness sakes, they were nailed to crosses. I think baptism was probably 
impractical. The other part of it is we're under a completely different covenant. Yeah. Jesus has not technically died yet. Uh, we're under a, a different, you know, the, the New Testament, the New Covenant, uh, where repentance and baptism was required, uh, had not technically begun yet. So there's all sorts of problems with this argument. I think we use this story for what it is, understanding that God is compassionate and that he's merciful and he doesn't want anyone to perish. And it's a wonderful example of how Jesus uh, showed that even in his last moments. But my warning here is don't let this exception uh, be applied as the rule for why we don't have to be uh, baptized and why we can ignore the rest of Jesus' commands. Good answer. Jesus is the Lamb, the Bible says, and this viewer wants to know, uh, why is Jesus called the Lamb? Well, uh, I got to think about this probably in the United States, the vast majority of people have never even seen a lamb, uh, except in a cartoon. Uh, they're not, they don't know anything about sheep and lambs. Well, if you grew up in the Old Testament, uh, you saw a lot of lambs, and you were familiar with what they were for and the significance of them uh, because you grew up hearing the story of the Passover <coughs> and how <coughs> excuse me, God saved the Israelites from Egypt uh, by having them kill a lamb and put the blood over the door and on the doorpost. Uh, they heard that story every year at least once, and <coughs> they understood what the lamb did for them. It saved them uh, from the Egyptians. Now, they also weekly <coughs> went and watched sacrifices and saw Dad go pick the best lamb out of the flock and take him to the priest and have him sacrificed to pay for their sins. So Old Testament people uh, understood what a lamb was for. And if you grew up that way, <coughs> when Jesus was called the lamb, then it made sense to you. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, let's look at John chapter 1 and verse 29. Uh, this is when Jesus was coming up to John the Baptist, and it says the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All right, that's why Jesus was called the Lamb, because that picture had been going on for hundreds of years, and people understood it. And Jesus was the perfect lamb, the sacrifice that didn't have to be repeated. Uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about once for all, he was sacrificed and our sins are paid for. So that's why Jesus was called the lamb. I'll take this moment and invite you to visit a church of Christ near you. We are kept on the air by churches of Christ around you, and we like to thank one or two of them each week and uh, tell them thank you for helping us be on the air. Here's two of our main partners. Uh, one is in Springfield, Missouri, and one's in Burlington, Iowa, uh, the Watermill Church of Christ and uh, the Burlington, Iowa Church of Christ. Uh, if you live in one of those communities or close to them or you're passing through sometime, uh, stop in, visit those folks. Tell them you heard about them on Know Your Bible and you appreciate this program. If you're looking for a church home, you would find a friendly group of people at either of those places, uh, folks that study and take the Bible serious like, like we do on this program. So uh, drop in and give them a visit or any community you're in. There's probably a Church of Christ close to you, and we'd invite you to uh, drop in and visit them or tell them you heard about them on Know Your Bible. So thank you to Watermill and to Burlington for your support. 
All right, speaking of churches, how about seven of them? Yeah, we have seven specifically. <laughs> uh, the question is, what do the seven churches in Revelation mean? Uh, when you read the book of Revelation, uh, most people misread it because they look at it and seek to apply all of that was written in today's terms. But when you look at the book of Revelation, it's very clear that the things that are written, uh, the, the vision that John wrote down, uh, were about things that were to shortly come to pass. Now, the church, seven churches of Revelation are mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Very interesting that Jesus gives very specific instructions to these seven churches in the area of Asia Minor. There, the churches were uh, uh, the, the body of Christians there in these different cities. The church at Ephesus, and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And each of the churches, as, as evidence as you read through the letter, had different strengths and weaknesses, and Jesus addresses those. Um, so uh, the churches were a literal group of people, and Jesus was giving them the instructions. In Revelation chapter 1, before those instructions begin, Jesus tells this to John. He says, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so J John sees this vision of Jesus with the seven lampstands and the seven stars, and he's explaining that. And he says these lampstands are representative of the churches, which is a beautiful picture, the light shining there from those cities. And he's giving them instructions, and they're, like I said, they're each unique to that particular church. But the general overall principle is stay faithful, don't give up, persecution's going to happen, but remain faithful to me. So the seven churches were actual churches, and the instructions that they were given are useful, I think, to all churches. All righty, good explanation. Jir wants to know about a couple of books. Uh, I've been reading the books of Jasher and Enoch and find them very interesting. Uh, should Christians read those books? Uh, well, my answer is it's okay to read them. Uh, you just got to understand what you're reading. You're not reading scripture. You're not reading inspired writings. Uh, it's kind of like reading a novel or a fiction book. You can read about anything you want. You just got to understand it's fiction. Uh, don't think God's telling you anything in there. Uh, <clears throat> Jasher is a book or a writing mentioned in the Bible, but it's lost. We don't know where it is and don't know anything about it. Uh, what you're probably reading is one that was written in the 1700s by some fellow that claimed he had found the lost book and translated it and been proven a fake. Uh, but it's got some interesting stuff in it, I'm sure. And the Book of Enoch uh, is also attributed to, as a false, uh, it's called a falsely attributed book. The guy that wrote it claimed to be Enoch, but everybody agrees it wasn't Enoch. So you can read them. They're interesting. Uh, they got some things wrong in them. They probably got some things true in them. Uh, they're interesting, but they're fallible. So if you want to read them, read them. Understand that you're just reading a fiction book. Let's take time for our trivia question today. Abraham's nephew was a fellow we need a name for. Might have got a lot of answers on this, but there's one good answer, and that is Lot was Abraham's nephew. And uh, hopefully you got that one right. We'll be back next week to answer some more of your questions on Know Your Bible. Uh, we thank you for being with us today and invite you back next week. 
until we see you again, we hope you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.